G'day everybody and welcome back to The Extras. My name is Sam. And I'm Jack. And Jack, we are here with a bumper, potentially double episode uh, that we're doing today. The Lord has willed it and predestined <laughs> it that there will be two episodes of The Extras today. That is right. And yet the people of St. Paul's are responsible for the questions that they ask and they have asked them in abundance. So. That's it. Then we're going to take our responsibility <laughs> and answer them and uh, the Lord will sovereignly answer all of your questions through our human answers. Anyway, welcome also, everybody. It's great to see you. If uh, if you missed it and you don't know what we're talking about, uh, we've had a couple of weeks uh, uh, kind of exploring the issues around God's sovereignty and predestination and human responsibility and how it all fits in with that uh, as it has come out of Romans chapter 9 and uh, and to that end we've got a stack of questions that we're going to be yeah, doing today. That's right. But before we do that, Jack, it might be helpful for us to just to quickly recap what were some of the things we were talking about around this topic over the last week in particular. Yeah, that's right. So on Sunday in particular, most of what we were talking about was really giving the the other side to the story, in a sense, if you like. Uh, Romans 9, we focused big picture, God's sovereign will, his choice to choose some and not others. Uh, what we were getting at uh, on Sunday was thinking a bit about the other side of that whole equation, which is the responsibility we have as humans. And maybe one way to helpfully summarize it is we had these two propositions that we put up on the screen. On the one hand, God is totally sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions so as to reduce the responsibility of us humans in decision-making. So God's sovereign, but it's not like that just trumps our responsibility, so our decisions don't matter. That was the first one. The second, on the other side, human beings make real decisions that we are responsible for, and yet our decisions never undermine the preordained plan of God. So we make choices, and they matter, but it's not like our choices thwart the plan that God has already made. And seeing how those two truths come together wonderfully in a few different passages in the Bible is what we're doing on Sunday, seeing how, you know, for example, in the, the cross of our Lord Jesus, that uh, worldly rulers planned it and schemed and were jealous and killed him, and yet that happened according to the foreordained plan of God, and praise God that it did, because that means our salvation. So two huge ideas really challenging wrestling through how they kind of come together and most of our questions today are really getting us into that as we, we, we think it through. Yeah, and the key today, I mean, just a, a heads up, if you kind of want to just one one answer to most of the questions, the, the answer to many of the questions today is going to be yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> is God sovereign or does do human beings have responsibility? Yes. Um, That's the, right. And what happens is we go wrong when we pick one of those at the expense of the other. The mm. Bible keeps holding them hand in hand, side by side, both are true, and the answer to which one is it is yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that, that's a helpful little thing to keep in your mind as, as, as we get into it. But let's dive in. Uh, we've got somewhere in the order of 30 plus questions today. Um, and so, you know, we'll go for half an hour. We'll, we'll push pause. We've got coffees to keep us going. Maybe you want to have one while you uh, <laughs> tune in. Have your Bible open too. We're going to kind of be moving throughout the scriptures mm. um, today. And um, hopefully that'll be helpful for, for us. Jack, really important one as we get going. What is the theological significance of the fake pot plant on the high table? <laughs> it is a, it's a great question, isn't it? We have, we've seen that pot plant in all sorts of different uh, places on the screen over the past few weeks. Uh, one person uh, I mentioned, I was sitting with someone on, uh, at Night Church when this question came in, and they had a great answer, which is way better than anything I could have come up with. And they said that, you know, the, the grass withers and the flowers fade, uh, but the word of the Lord endures forever, just like this fake plant, which is never going to wilt and die. So there you go. You've got this picture of the, the permanence of the word of God sitting right there on the table for us all to see as we hear the word. I think that's the best answer I could give you. Yeah. Pretty sure um, we, we, we actually sticky taped it or, or, you know, something more than that to the, to the table in order that when Raj preaches, he likes to have an iPad, uh, but it kept kind of slipping off uh, when he leaned it up against the fake pot plant. So I think they sort of, you know, super glued the pot 
top went to the table <laughs> such that it could support Raj's iPad. Um, so it's bearing the weight of the word as well. <laughs> it's so yeah. much theological significance. Very right significant, there. yeah. All right, let, let, if, I'm, if I'm going to start, let's get into it properly. Um, the first few questions that tackle me today are really about clarifying what was preached on Sunday. So this idea of predestination, let's really work at understanding it clearly. Mm. First question, uh, someone says, thanks for the sermon, but I have to say I'm confused. I'm sure you're not the only one. Um, are you saying that God has predestined me to have the opportunity to come to him, and it is then my choice whether or not to take that opportunity? Um, yeah, thanks for the question. I think I'd want to say, no, that's not quite what we're saying. Mm. Um, we're not saying that God just predestines you with the opportunity, and then you get my choice. We're saying God has predestined those who will be saved, and each of us has a real responsibility to respond to the gospel. Both are true. Um, and maybe a kind of helpful kind of sentence that, that maybe captures this up is that the preaching of the gospel is God's ordained mean by which he brings home the elect to salvation. Okay, can you unpack that? So, yeah, God has a plan. He knows exactly who he is going to save. Um, he knows those who are his from those who are not his. And the way that he brings them home is through the very human activity of the preaching of the gospel. Mm. And so when you hear the gospel and you respond and, rep- um, you know, repentance and faith, if that's uh, what you've done, praise God if it is, um, then that you've done that because you are one of the elect that God has called home. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who make that choice, it's not like God just kind of got you up to the point where you hear the gospel and, oh, now it's up to you to take it or leave it. No, if God mm. has chosen you, then you will respond. That's right. That's right. And we're going to talk a bit later about how God's spirit plays a role in that, that kind of thing. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you didn't have a choice. You made a real choice. You, you wanted Jesus. You embraced him. Yep. And God had decided that would happen. So That's right. both these things are true. Both these things are true. Mm. Yep. Yep. Okay. Second one, um, just clarifier, Jack. When we talk about predestination, do we mean that God has predestination who will have salvation? Uh, or does it extend even beyond that to predestined decisions such as whether you'll live for 100 years or marry or stay single or other small decisions in life? Is, is predestination just about salvation or about everything? Yeah, great question. Um, when we talk about predestination, we are particularly talking about salvation. So it's kind of in the word predestination. So uh, those people, you know, whose destination will be heaven, if you like. That's the the thing that God has decided the destination pre, you know, before time. Mm. Um, I mean, the latter thing is still true. So God's sovereignty is over all the world. So yes, you know, how long you live and who you'll marry, all those things are part of God's sovereign plan. And the theological theological category that we capture all of that up in is the idea of God's providence. Mm. God's providence. God providentially governs and is in control of all that happens in our world. And then uh, a particular application of the idea of providence is predestination. So God's mm. in control of, of everything. That's the general truth of providence. And then, in particular, God has decided who will be saved. That's predestination as a sort of a subset of yeah. providence. And so perhaps um, in the way that we tackled the, the, the stuff on Sunday, um, the story of Joseph and his brothers is an expression of God's providential sovereignty. Um, mm. uh, the, the ins and outs of the, you know, the, the particular slave traders that came by to pick up Joseph out of the pit and the particular house that he happened to get bought, bought by Potiphar's household mm. and then just so happened that he happened to be in the, in, in the cell with the... Um, with the Pharaoh's kind of cupmaker, and you know, like th- these are you know um, all details that the Lord sovereignly oversees, such yeah. that at the right moment when the famine comes, Joseph has been positioned so that he is the prime minister of Egypt and can save God's people from the famine. Um, mm. All of those details fall under God's sovereignty. We call that category providence. Yeah, helpful. Yeah. All right. 
Uh, we're up to Megan, aren't we? Okay, next question clarifying. Someone just asked, how is it possible that God is completely sovereign, yet humans are completely responsible? Um, you're getting it. That's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the question, isn't it? That's the whole thing we're wrestling with, yeah. These are the two things. How can it be possible? Um, in our brains, we we sense a contradiction in those things, and we think it can't be one. It has to be one or the other. It's mm. either God's in control or um, humans are responsible, but the scriptures are saying that both are true, okay? So this is the thing that we're going to keep pushing forward just because I think that's what the scripture does. Um, is that the answer is yes, um, that, that, but those things are true. Mm. And so how is it possible? There is a de- degree of mystery here. Um, it's not um, contradiction, it's not nonsense, uh, but there is mystery in the same way that how is it true that God is three and one? Yeah, mm. he is. Um, <laughs> and we, we, we accept a degree of mystery um, and, and some sense of the, the hugeness of God that he is able to, um, hold these things to be true, and and that is the God that is there, who a one who is in control, and who yet who gives humans real choices and and uh, real decisions and real responsibility. Yeah, I think that's profoundly true. Um, I mean, one like another little thing that gets us, I think, in the end, a long way to getting there is the the little phrase God uses means, mm. and a lot of what you'll hear us talk about today is basically unpacking that. I mean, God mm. does things, but that doesn't mean that what humans do doesn't matter. God works through the choices that we make. So again, with Joseph, uh, you know, God had this intent and the brothers had this intent and God works through the, the evil will and the, the situation that the brothers had caused for his good purpose. God mm. uses the means of the brothers to bring about his plan. That's one of the ways that you see how the two things start to come together. I mean, that doesn't solve it all, but I think that's, you know, starts to help you think in the right direction. Yep, that's right. Okay, let, let's keep moving here. Um, what do we? What say do we have in anything? If God chooses us, where does our response fit? How can these verses be reconciled with the notion of free will? And if there's no free will, how does creation bring glory to God? So it's a question about free will here, Jack. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to take it, there's a few things in there, but question by question, what say do we have in anything? Uh, our say matters. That's, that's a big part of what we've been trying to emphasize. Mm. God chooses and we choose. Yes, again, we're going to keep saying that. Um, free will in particular, uh, if, if you were looking for it, you, you wouldn't have found the language of free will in the talk that Sam and I preached on Sunday. And that's quite deliberate. Uh, we think that, that that term is not particularly helpful and doesn't really reflect the, the truth that the Bible is, is trying to put forward on this front. Free will can sound as if, well, you know, I as a human have free will, I can do whatever I want. There's no constraints on what I do. If I don't have the option to choose something or not choose something, how, how can I really be free? All of that, if that's what you mean by free will, then I think what you end up with is uh, a, a model of kind of human decision making that trumps and thwarts God's sovereignty. If, if I'm completely unconstrained, then how can God be sovereign? So free will, I think, is, is not what the Bible is putting forward. I mean, the language that we, we've been trying to use is that of a real will, uh, a will that matters. It's not that we are completely free to choose whatever we want. It's that we are we make real choices and responsibility is the other side of it. We are held accountable and responsible for the choices we make. doesn't mean that in any situation you are completely free to do anything you could have possibly wanted. Mm-hmm. It means that the decision you make matters because you'll be held accountable for it. Yeah. What would you want to add? Yeah. I mean, we're going to hit this question in a couple of different ways through the course of these episodes. Um, and it comes down to, uh, is, is the world in some sense, I'll use the word deterministic um, mm. or indeterministic. Now that's a bit of technical language there. Is there a, a, a sovereign uh, God who determines the path that things are going to go? Or is there a sense of 
things are undetermined and who knows how they'll play out. Um, in order to accommodate the, the idea, the concept of free will, you have to accept something of an indeterministic um, world where there are, you know, all sorts of potentialities. Mm. Um, and yet scripture just cries out against that and says, no, 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 no. God, God already knows when the sparrow will die. Um, God knows th- which way the dice will come up when it's rolled. Um, it's not, there's not a, um, that doesn't mean that we, uh, when we don't have any sense of freedom or any sense of real choices, but it's not free, free will in the classic sense. Um, mm. It's within a, a deterministic uh, system, human beings truly do what they want, um, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, to come on to the last part of this question, if there's no free will, how does creation bring glory to God? Mm. I think the assumption behind a question like that is, unless we as humans are utterly free to choose God or not, then there's something sort of cheapened in our response to God, right? Like, Mm. I think the the assumption is, well, if God just made robots who just always did what he wanted, then how could he be glorified by um, people deciding to choose God? Because, well, I mean, that's just what's going to happen. Like, where's the glory in that? You know, if, if God, like, woos people who could have rejected him, but they choose him, surely that's the more mm. glorifying thing. And I think, in the end, what that sort of framing of it loses is the whole idea of human responsibility. Because it's not just that God has created robots who are automatically programmed to just always uh, respond. It's that God has entrusted us and, and given us real responsibility and we make real choice. So, again, if, if you collapse one side of the, the tension... Uh, then you, you're going to run into problems. But um, God is glorified because our real choices matter and we will be held responsible for, for whether we, we choose Christ or not. Yeah, and it is, it's just coming back to going, I have to hold both of these things together. Mm. God does, and I struggle to, but I need to. Yeah, <laughs> well said, yeah. yeah. So that's a few, yeah, a few questions to, to hopefully clarify the big picture of what we're talking about. Uh, we're going to change tack a little now and dive into some, uh, some details of the text. There's been a few questions come in, particularly about Romans 9 and how uh, predestination fits into all of that. First one of those, uh, how does this doctrine fit into chapter 9 of Romans and God's chosen people, Israel? Has God not, through his sovereign grace and mercy, chosen all of Israel, but not all of Israel have chosen him? And their rejection of him has allowed we Gentiles to be grafted in. Is it not then a warning to us all to respond to God's sovereign, outstretched hand of mercy? So I think the heart of that question is, yeah, how, how does we see predestination in Romans 9 if the message there is God chose all Israel, but not all Israel chose him? Yeah, and, and it's not quite right the way that that question's framed. So let me see if I can unpick it a little bit. Um, Romans 9 verse 6 is a helpful verse to just keep starting with as, mm-hmm. as we come into this, where... where Paul makes the point there, it's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And so it sets up this idea that there is a, a true Israel, a true people of God within the broader um, nation. And so there's a sense in which the nation are corporately elect, but um, that's speaking at, at one kind of level, speaking about the, the whole nation, God's chosen people. But actually, even within that broader nation, there is particularity to God's choice that he chooses some of those people to be truly his elect and others he he doesn't. So we were talking about this in a couple of weeks ago, Jacob, not Esau, and you know Isaac, not Ishmael, and, and that's part of the way that um, Paul's trying to say, actually, God has always been like this. So he didn't, didn't actually choose every individual mm. and then they've somehow kind of arced their will up against God's sovereign will and rejected him. Um, and in fact, as you keep going... Um, into Romans 11, um, uh, Paul goes on, and we'll come to this in a couple of weeks, so I don't want to do too much detail on it here, yeah. um, but there's a sense in which um, Romans 11 verse 5, Paul's reflecting on how so few apparently Jews 
uh, trust in Jesus. Uh, 11.1, he says, did God reject his people? Uh, and then he says, by no means, I'm an Israelite. Like, there's at least one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, mm. and, and then in 11.5, he says, um, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And there's your, your chosen and electing language. Mm. And the remnant is this kind of this subset of the people of Israel, a little bit like back in, you know, um, the days uh, under um uh, the prophets where so many Israelites um, started to worship the worship the Baals and give up on Yahweh, uh, except for this Yahweh, this remnant that God himself retained. Yeah. Um, and uh, Paul is saying, no, no, there's, there's always been a remnant that God has hung on to. Um, mm. So it's not as if God actually um, particularly elects every uh, kind of bloodline Israelite. Yeah. Um, instead, he elects particular individuals within that broader corporate uh, and he knows everyone who is truly an Israelite and all of them will truly be saved yeah yeah so you got two uses of the word election in a sense and that's worth noting I think uh, yeah. we hear election as a very kind of technical theological term but I mean they'll go behind that it just means choice like it's mm. you know and there's two choices so God elected Israel as a nation as in he chose them you know they're his firstborn son as he says to, to yep. Pharaoh yep uh but you're saying not every Israelite was chosen in the same way. That's right. Yeah. And and that's helpful to pick up on the two uses of the word election. Um, so 11.28 uses the other version. Um, 11.28, as far as the gospel is concerned, talking about Israel, um, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. So mm. there's a sense in which Paul acknowledges, yeah, God has a contract with the nation um, and, and there's because of the promise to the patriarchs, he has a special place for Israel, but that's different to saying that every single Israelite will particularly be mm-hmm. saved through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't think that's what Romans 9 to 11 is saying, even though there are some who, who would argue that and would say, no, what yeah. Romans 9 to 11 is saying is that every ethnically Jewish person will be there on the last day. I don't think that's correct. I, I think mm. that's a misreading of the text. Yeah, we will get to that in a big way in a few weeks, aren't we? We yeah. will, yeah. I mean, for this question, as for the last part, is Romans 9 not then a warning to us all to respond to God's sovereign outstretched hand of grace and mercy to us all? Yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, wholeheartedly, yes. Um, yeah, because we have real responsibility <laughs> to respond for our part to the sovereign work of God. Exactly, yeah. All right, let's keep going. Um, so regarding um, chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, um, which maybe be helpful to read out, 9, yeah, 22 read and 23. Do you mind reading those? Yeah. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Mm. So do those verses imply that the ultimate value of an elect person's life is as an object of mercy and, on the other side of that coin, that the ultimate value of an unchosen or a reprobate's life is as an object of wrath, i.e. that their ultimate purpose in life is to act as a foil in contrast from the objects of mercy. So, mm. do you catch that question? Um, is that where people's value lies, that they, they're simply a, an object that sort of um, yeah, shows either God's grace or or, or justice. Um, is that is that where people's value comes from? Yeah, value is a really loaded term, so I'm I'm keen to kind of tread carefully and unpick that a little bit. I think what this verse is saying is uh, at least part of the purpose that God has in mind for people is either as those who will be ex- experiencing His wrath and therefore, yes, in a sense, be a foil to contrast for the object of mercy. So I think that's part of the purpose for which God has uh, appointed people. To say that's their ultimate value, I think that 
uh, puts it a little too strongly, and particularly that word ultimate, because I think there's other things that human beings are valuable for, whether people end up being elect or not. Uh, human beings, God has, has made them in his image. We have the, the dignity of being image bearers of God, and, and fallen humans still reflect the, the image of God in some sense. So we have this inherent value and dignity uh, as mm. part of the doctrine of creation, really, as part of who God has made and why it made us to, to rule the world on his behalf, or all of that, that stuff that you see set up in Genesis 1 and 2. That's true of all human beings uh, in this kind of you know way that's impacted by the fall, but not in a way that takes away our dignity. So mm. even people who will ultimately not be saved still have value as, as humans who are made in the image of God. Yeah, do you want to add yeah, anything there? Yeah, no, no, that's helpful. And, and at one level here, Jack, the question ask is actually a step ahead of you because they, they've preempted Love what that. you just, just said. Cause they it's said, a multi-parter. It's a yeah. multi-parter. So <laughs> let, me, let me read you the second part. Maybe yeah. I, I think they might have texted it in a few, in a few chunks. Mm. Um, going on from the above question, the Bible also tells me that people's value comes from bearing God's image. Hey, it does. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. They're, they're on it. Um, how can I hold on to both truths faithfully? Mm. i.e. the people we relate with have value as image bearers and as elect or not chosen i feel this tension that the bible tells me people are both equal and unequal at the same time yeah we were saying, we were saying before sam it's almost like the the animal farm thing isn't it? you know all people are equal but some are more equal than others that's right yeah. the pigs are more equal than the rest of the animal, <laughs> uh, animals you know, yeah that's if you've right read that book yeah um yeah. Yeah, it's a good question, and I, I think I, can, I get the tension, yeah. So, I mean, there is a sense in which people are... Unequal, again, is a, such a loaded term. Like, we, we hear that with all the kind of cultural baggage of, oh, totally. but that means people matter less. Um, so I think human beings, we are equal in our dignity as image bearers, like this mm. question saying. That is the thing that is true of every human being, whether they'll be saved or not. Yeah. Um, but there is this distinct difference that some people will be made for the purpose of experiencing God's mercy and the glory that comes with that and some will experience wrath and glorify God that way that doesn't mean that people are like unequal in their value and how you think about them and I think there's yeah. something quite uh, dangerous about using election as the the fact upon which to base your ethical system if you like you know the yeah. way you see people and treat them and, and, and think of them as valuable I mean not least the danger of that is that we don't know who the elect are that's and it. that's one of the things we've been trying to get at on Sunday as well that God's decision in in eternity is not, you know, revealed to us. And like we all get a copy of the Book of Life and can just, you know, look up. Oh, is this person yeah. an elect? Therefore, they're more valuable, so I should treat them differently. Like that's that's just that's not right. the that's the eternal decree of God, which is hidden, which we don't have access to. Yeah. All that we know as we see people is are they human beings or not? If they are, they're made in God's image, and they're called for us to respect them and and, and treat them with dignity. I mean, the other thing that we know is that someone may be claiming, professing to be a Christian at this time as well. I mean, how? I mean. Yeah, does that play into you know, the question of value, do you think? Yeah, so I mean, uh, summing up to that point, I think that's really helpful that because we don't have access to the decretal will of God, mm. um, we, we treat people on the basis of their human dignity regardless. Yeah. And yet, I think perhaps the one thing I'd add to that is that um, there is a particular love that Christians are called to show to other Christians. You know, mm. um, what, what Jesus says to his disciples, you know, by this, what, what's he talking about? By this will all people know that you are my disciples, what? That you love one another. Mm. Um, and John 13. Yeah, John 13. Um, you know, um, show, Paul talks about showing particular kindness to the household of God. So there is a sense in which we, we love other Christians with a particular kind of brotherly love. Um, mm. But that, uh, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not just that because I, I well, I've, I've kind of given all my love to the Christians, I've got nothing <laughs> left for other human image bearers. Um, yeah. I don't think that's the way the Bible puts it. There is a love and a dignity that is shown to all because they're born in the image of God, no matter who they are or what background they have, they are precious in the sight of God. 
And yet, for those who claim the name of Christ, we, we show a particular love because we share a brotherly, uh, you know, family relationship. We share the same father with them. Mm. Um, and so we love them in a, in, a, in a special way. But that doesn't mean we're somehow not loving or hating the rest of humanity. Yeah. 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 So, yes, equal in dignity and value. Yeah, I think that election doesn't change that. Well, there's different purposes, but um, how we treat people can't hinge on that because we don't know. Mm. Um, we've got another part, though. This question goes on. Just keeps coming. Uh, this, this is a good one. So, this person's also asked, does this passage, Romans 9, also imply that the value of salvation is enhanced by the destruction of the unchosen? But if Jesus' sacrifice is inherently, infinitely valuable and significant, why does God need to make salvation look even better by setting people towards destruction? Mm, okay. Um, here, I think I want to push back a little bit on the question. Mm. Um in that, I'm not sure that Romans 9 is saying that, that the value of salvation is enhanced or that salvation looks even better. I don't I think that's quite reading. I mean, if we go back to read um, chapter 9, verse 23, mm. notice what it is that gets shown. Um, what if, so 9.23, what if God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Do you notice that it's God's glory that is that is on display um, uh, to the objects of His mercy? That's us. So Christians get to see the glory of God. Yeah. Um, it, so it's not saying that salvation looks better than destruction. Uh, it's saying that God's glory is seen in both. Yeah. Uh, and, and really, that's kind of doing that Copernican revolution thing that we were talking about two weeks ago that we start to see that really what's at the center of all this is a, is a display of God's glory. Mm. And so I think that's just, um, yeah, Jesus' sacrifice is wonderful and full of value and significant, as the question sort of says, but I don't yeah. think that's, the, that's not the point Paul's making. He's not saying it's to make salvation look better than destruction. It's to, in, in both things that God does, both in saving and in bringing justice, God is making his God is displaying his glory and the people who get to see that are the ones who who know him and are Christians. Yeah. Yeah. I think I captured it well. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So all right. Um a couple of other ones. Uh why would God create us like this? Uh as a potter, why does God make good or bad products when he has a choice? This has come back to the language of the the pottery where God makes some vessels for noble use and some for common use. And mm. why, why does God do it like that, Jack? Yeah, there's this inherent feeling of unfairness, perhaps, that we, we, we feel as we come to this kind of question. I mean, lots to say here, but I think the first thing to say is it's it's worth noting that, I mean, the question that you've put in here is almost exactly the question that Paul's talking about. You know, mm-hmm. Romans 9 verse 20, um, Shall what is formed, say the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? This is the exact question to which Paul says... Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? <laughs> and I think that means we need to tread carefully, right? As mm. we ask these kinds of questions, if we come to this demanding that God must make sense to us and God needs to submit His will to our moral logic, then the whole point of Romans 9, in a sense, is to say, sit back down. That mm. God is God, that you are not. And that's, that's a really humbling thing to hear, which is exactly the point. Because the universe revolves around God and His glory and Him glorifying His Son, the Lord Jesus, and we are caught up in the orbit of that, but it's not all about us. Mm. And the answer, I think, at the end of the day, as Paul goes on to say, I mean, the verses we just talked about, 22-23, why does God make this choice? Well, Paul says, what if God decided to do this to make the object, the, the glory, His glory known to the objects of mercy? God has decided this is the way that He will glorify Himself, and He is glorified both in the 
the gift of mercy to those who get to receive it, and he is glorified in his justice as he pours out his wrath upon sinners who have rejected him. Yep. Both those things glorify God. That's why God decides to do this. Uh, you know, Yes, God perhaps could have chosen to save everyone, but God has decided that the way he is going to make his glory known to the universe is in both objects of mercy and wrath. Yep. That's yep. hard to hear, isn't it? That's, it is. Yeah, it's humbling, and yep. that's exactly the point. Yeah, but we need to find our place, and it's, you know, we're not at liberty to, to submit God to our rationale and say, well, God, I would have done it differently. Mm. Um, God has done it how he is, and one day we will be with him in glory and be like, oh, of course. But yeah. at this point, we, we need to go, God is God, and I'm not. Yeah. This question pushes a little further, um, and we'll, we'll keep going. I mean, there's, yeah, there's some, some big... Big emotional things here that it's worth continuing to ask. So this person mm. goes on, um, what does prepared for destruction mean? Yeah. And is God a psychopath to want and to plan the destruction of so many people? Um, yeah. I'll chuck another question that came in on a similar line. Someone asked, wouldn't God be more glorified if he chose everyone to be saved? Yeah. Um, w- well, so come to 20, the, the, the question about the first one, which is uh, what does prepare for destruction mean that's the language of nine of romans nine twenty two. what if god choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction mm. um so that's the that's where the language coming from what does that mean um i think that's talking about god bringing justice and judgment upon sinners um mm. Uh, the, the Bible uses a variety of images to kind of capture up that, that moment. Um, punishment is one of them. Uh, casting out is another image. Um, uh, the, the fiery image of hell is another one. Destruction here is another one. Um, they are, it's an image-loaded uh, kind of idea that is meant to conjure up the idea of facing the wrath of God, yeah. uh, which is what Romans has been talking about. Um, so I think that's what the language is getting at. Um, in this particular image, it, it kind of fits with the pottery image that he's working with because, you know, you can imagine creating a pot and then smashing it, you know, um, yeah. and, and that kind of captures something. Um, Psalm 2 uses a similar kind of um, mm. uh, image, you know, that, that um, when the kings of the earth rebel against God, he, he, he dashes them to pieces like pottery. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's picture language to speak of the, the judgment and wrath of God against yeah. sinners. So mm. hopefully that clarifies what that um, term means. Um, the second part of the question, he's got a psychopath to want and to plan the destruction of so many people. Um, I think hopefully you'll know that I'm going to say the answer there is no. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a relief. Yeah. Um, but a couple of reasons for that. The first thing to note is within the verse itself. Verse 22, notice that the thing that it's highlighting here is actually God's patience. Mm. Um, what if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? The fact that God hasn't brought this about already God could have destroyed all of us at the moment that we first sinned or the moment that humanity in Adam and Eve sinned. But God has been incredibly patient with this world. Mm. Um, he has set a day when he will judge and bring uh, bring this day of judgment on the earth. But he is being incredibly patient and bearing with us at the same time as holding out the offer of salvation to those very sinful people like you and me. Mm. And, you know, if Christ had returned... You know, 30 years ago, I wouldn't be saved. Yeah. Um, and God, ha- so so the the thing to note is that God is far from a psychopath. If anything, he is um, he is the most patient um, a- and kind and gracious God. Who, while he could and should bring justice already, chooses not to in patience. Yeah. And, and Romans is highlighting that. Um, and so uh, 
the other part of the question to, 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 to note then is why, why does God do it this way? Well, this is part of what Romans 9 is helping us to see is that God, is both, God will, will both save and bring judgment uh, and he does both to different people and both uh, show his glory. Mm. Um, and so the second question is, well, why doesn't he just save everyone if he can show glory through that? Well, if God saves everyone, then at that point there is no justice and there's no, you know, if everyone just is, is fine and it's all good, um, then it, it, it diminishes the, 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 the true justice of God, that, that mm. sin really is sin and really does deserve punishment. And sometimes I think we, we ask that question when we think that everybody deserves mercy. Yeah. Uh, nobody deserves mercy, and that's, why, that's what makes it mercy. It is, at the end of the day, a gift, and God doesn't have to offer it to our others, uh, to everyone. Um, it's, it's part of his kindness. Um, he, he owes justice to everybody, and that is what we should expect. That he shows mercy to any is just a phenomenal thing that should just cause us to overflow with thanksgiving rather than to kind of raise our little fists and say why don't you show some more mercy um, <laughs> that that's not the right question yeah so, did, do you want to add anything into that jack no i think that's a really helpful summary that's okay good. Um, cool. and maybe to sum it up the last question in this sort of set someone's asked is romans 9 the theological theological equivalent of you get what you get and you don't get upset <laughs> yeah my wife says this to our kids um, <laughs> it's often in the night where whatever's on the menu is not what they're like their, their favorite meal and yeah. you know they'll be like what's for dinner and you get what you get and you don't get upset um, <laughs> um yeah uh yeah what, what, what do you what do you think mate what yeah i think it's a in some sense, kind of, I, I get what this person's getting at. Yeah, there's there's a, a real reality that this passage is putting before us that God is God and we are not. Yes. Uh, we, we keep saying that. I think that it's it's slightly different to you get what you get and you don't get upset because I don't think this passage is primarily speaking to you know each of us as individuals and saying, well, you know, you are an object of, mm -hmm. of wrath and you are an object of mercy and whatever you are, that's what you get, then um, yeah. so deal with it. Yeah. Uh, this is more about... Uh, kind of stepping back and looking at the way that God has set up the universe. So it's not about us as individuals so much as, well, what if God has decided that some people would be objects of wrath and some would be objects of mercy? You know, how do you feel about it if God decides to do it that way? Yeah. In a sense, it doesn't matter how you feel because God is God and you're not. Yeah. Um, so it's not so much you get what you get and don't get upset. It's God decides who gets what yeah. and don't get upset. Yeah. And I think that's important because as we come to God as individuals, God doesn't, you know, in this world, he doesn't say, well, I've chosen you, you know, get in board the lifeboat, come with me. I haven't chosen you. God never addresses us like that. The way that the gospel comes to us is it says, Jesus is the king. He died for sinners. Come to him and have life. And, and that invite is expressed to all of us. So none of us can say they're saying, oh, but God, you didn't choose me. That's just not how God addresses us as, I mean, particularly as unbelievers. Uh, he says to us, Jesus is the one who you need to look to and believe in to have life. So none of us kind of can say to God, you know, here and now in time and say, God, you haven't given me, you know, the good thing. Well, God is there holding it out to us saying, take it, come, have life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you were saying before that, um, who is this doctrine for? That's a helpful way to think about Absolutely, it? yeah. So, and I think in that sense, it is a doctrine of comfort for Christians. It is not. Um, the the doctrine that we preach, you know, evangelistically, and you see mm. that in the way that Paul's addressing it in the letter. He started with Romans one to three, and uh, you know, uh, helping you to see that you're a sinner under wrath, and then showing you that Christ is is your savior, um, and then um, you know, come to Him in faith and repentance. Uh, he is the, the the one who's justified us, 
and then uh, it's in the it's in the course of some objections that he's dealing with now by Romans nine that he's addressing this issue, and, and so I think one of the ways what the theologians put it is that this is a doctrine of unspeakable comfort to the elect, um, but it is not a, a doctrine for the, those who are not yet saved. Um, mm. you, we we preach the gospel; that is what God has told us to do, and then as people respond, we we give them the encouragement that hey. You've responded in faith because you are one of God's chosen people, yeah. and uh, it is comforting for the elect. Um, but this is not the kind of headline doctrine that we, we lead our evangelistic rally with. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, and that's rightly so. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, maybe just final postscript on that. It's not just that we want to understand the the theology and the truths that God has revealed. It's also important as we read the Bible to to see how the doctrines are used in Scripture. Mm. Um, you look at the way Paul talks about predestination in Ephesians 1, and it's praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly rooms with every spiritual blessing, yeah. for in love he, he predestined us. It, it, you know, It's not just the truth is there. We're also told how to respond to that truth and what it's for. It's to make us praise God. It's to give us the wonderful assurance and praise to God for what he's done. Yeah. So we don't just want to know the truth. We also want to see how the Bible uses that truth and what implications we're meant to draw from it yeah and and i think it's interesting i mean we'll almost pause in a moment Jack. Uh, say, yeah. we'll sort of this will be the end of end of part one <laughs> and uh, we'll dive into part two um our growth group last night we're looking at acts 13 and 14 as we were we were just sort of digging into some of this mm. um and it's interesting the way that acts talks about election and, and predestination um and in acts 13 Paul and Barnabas are literally have been preaching the gospel um, of, of the death of Jesus and the, the way to eternal life to to both Jews and then Gentiles. And then there's just this little aside comment um, by the author in Acts 13, um, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Mm. Uh, and so you get this sense that Paul and Barnabas didn't go out there and say, hey, some of you are going to be saved and some of you aren't. Put your hands up if you're elect. <laughs> they went yeah. up and they said, Jesus is Lord and calls you to repent and trust in his death on the cross. And the Gentiles hear this word, they rejoice in it, and all who were appointed for eternal life believe. So mm. with the with the spectacles of salvation on, with being a one of the people of God, you can then see as the gospel is preached that the elect come home. Yeah. Um, but when you're not yet elect and you're just hearing the gospel and you respond, you go, oh, I'm just hearing the offer of salvation and I'm trusting it. No, And then as you grow as a Christian, you start to go, oh, I see the wonder of this doctrine that actually I did that because God sovereignly called me. Mm. And, and I think that's a helpful to locate this doctrine according to its purpose rather than thinking that we're saying, hey, this is, this is what we lead with. You know, hey, have you heard about Jesus? He's either chosen you or he hasn't. Which one do you think you are? Yeah. That's, that's not the way we go about it. That's right. We, we hold up to people two ways to live, not, you know, either you're two ways to glorify <laughs> God and you're one or the other. Yeah, yeah. that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to press pause there. So hopefully what you've seen so far, we've been trying to clarify what this doctrine is. We've looked at some of the, the nitty gritty of Romans 9 and how that relates to this, this idea that God is the God who chooses. We're going to leave it there for this episode and we'd love you to take some time to chew over that and think it through and come back and join us in our next episode when we're going to look at how we kind of think more broadly and theologically about this idea and also pastorally. We're going to dig into some application questions as well. Cool. So we'll see you next time for that. All right, see you then.